Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of Freshfield's Essential Antitrust Asia podcast series. In this series, we speak with local experts across the region to bring you the latest competition law trends and updates. My name is Laurent Bougard, and I am a senior associate in the firm's antitrust competition and trade practice based in Hong Kong. This is our eighth episode in the series, and we'll turn to China to explore what the latest legislative developments are and what the enforcement trends are in that country. To discuss these topics, I'm joined by my colleagues from Beijing, Nanette Dudu and Hazel Yin. Nanette is a partner in our antitrust competition and trade group in Asia and leads our practice in China. Nanette's practice focuses on antitrust-related work and foreign investment review in China, Hong Kong, and the Asia-Pacific region. She spent over 10 years in Brussels assisting clients on EU and multi-jurisdictional matters before relocating to Asia in 2009. Hazel Yin was a partner and co-head of our antitrust team in China and is now a partner of the antitrust team at PRC firm Roymin. Being part of our Stronger Together network, Roymin is a firm that Freshfield has been working very closely with on PRC law-related matters. Hazel has over 15 years of experience representing Chinese and multinational clients in relation to some of the most complex merger control matters and investigations. Nanette and Hazel, welcome both. Hello, Laurent. Delighted to be here today. Hello, Laurent. Very nice to be here today. Well, let's get straight into it. The obvious headline is the recent series of amendments to China's anti-monopoly law. Lots of changes to the regime. Hazel, what would you consider to be the main takeaways for business in mainland China? I think the first and uh, foremost noticeable change is that the new anti-monopoly law has significantly enhanced its deterrence effect by uh, increasing existing fines and also introducing new fines. For example, the new AML uh, increased the fines for gun jumping from RMB 500,000 to RMB 5 million. It also introduced a super fine for serious anti-competitive conduct, meaning that the authority is entitled to increase the fine by two or even up to five times if they consider the infringement to be uh, extremely severe. The new AML has also introduced uh, personal liabilities for anti-competitive agreement and also paved the way for introduction of uh, criminal sanctions in the future. On the merger control side, one of the interesting developments is that the new AML codified SMR authority to review transactions below the turnover thresholds which are intended to capture killer acquisitions. As we all know, this has been a trend picked up by authorities in many jurisdictions when it comes to transactions in high-tech space or in life science space where the target may not have sufficient turnover, and yet the authority considers the transaction to be still able to affect competition in the market. Procedure-wise, the SMR introduced the stop-the-clock mechanism in merger control in an effort to further streamline the merger review process to improve procedural efficiency and to reduce the necessity of asking the filing parties to withdraw and refile their transactions, in particular in those high-profile or complicated transactions. On the conduct side, the new AML has also introduced some new mechanisms. 
For example, the new AML introduced the possibility of having safe harbors for vertical agreements. So we can talk about these new developments in the rest of the session. It really does sound like a full-on modernization package of the of the entire law. Let's zoom in a little bit on merger control first. Ninette, how would you describe the state of Chinese merger control at the moment, and what should notifying parties expect in view of this legislative change? The first point to mention, and picking up on the point Hazel made around the stop the clock mechanism, this is certainly a welcome change. It alleviates the pressure on parties and SAMR in terms of the timeline. For example, it gives more time to merging parties and SAMR to negotiate remedy packages without running out of time in practice. From my perspective, I think it still remains to be seen whether this will actually reduce the total time taken to review transactions, particularly in high-profile, complex, transformational deals in sensitive or strategic sectors. In other words, as before, what is likely to continue to inform the overall length of the review process are stakeholders or third parties, be they sector regulators, trade associations, customers, suppliers, or indeed competitors. Thinking of some of the other changes to look out for, there are proposals out for public consultations to amend China's merger control thresholds. Two sets have been proposed. One is intended to cover deals involving so-called mega corporations, which under the draft proposals is defined essentially as a company with approximately 14.6 billion US dollars in sales. The second set is targeted at increasing the current existing thresholds. And one notable change is the local nexus element which would be doubled from roughly 60 million US dollars to 120, in other words, from the initial 400 million RMB. Fundamentally, though, as highlighted by Hazel as, as well, the changes that were introduced on the merger control front were largely procedural, more than substantive in nature. This means that some of the points we have grappled with as antitrust counsel will remain. For example, in determining whether there is an acquisition of control, which is still not defined under the law, whether the simplified procedure applies or not, particularly when looking at the market share thresholds, which requires plausible market definitions to be assessed to determine whether you're in or outside the simplified procedure. When it comes to remedies, when are the circumstances when remedies can be imposed? In other words, what kind of transactions will attract remedies? And the remedy types, given the focus in some sectors on security supply type remedies. So I think these are some of the points to look out for going forward in practice. It sounds like a lot of the issues that we grapple with on whether to decide to notify in China or not are still there, that there, there's still a number of questions that this new law does not address. However, the change on the stop the clock is a welcome development because we have been pulling and refiling a number of cases when we did run out of time. And so hopefully that is something that will be confined to the past. Let's maybe switch gears now and, and look at antitrust. Obviously, a lot of wholesale changes there as well. Hazel, can you tell us a bit more about that and how this would compare with what has been going on in the EU and the UK, especially as regards block exemption type of arrangements? As I already mentioned, the new AML has provided ground for SMR to introduce safe harbors, specifically for vertical agreements. Currently in China, there are no safe harbor rules applicable across different sectors. 
We only have safe harbors applicable to the automobile sector and also safe harbors applicable specifically to IP-related agreements. For example, under the automobile antitrust guidelines, there is a safe harbor of 30% applicable to non-hardcore vertical agreements, such as territorial and customer restrictions. Now, with the amendment of the AML, SMR is working on introducing a safe harbor for vertical agreements that can apply to uh, all the industries. However, based on the draft regulations proposed by SMR, it appears that the market share for the safe harbor rule can be set at 15%, which, uh, as I understand, is much lower compared with the safe harbor rules in EU, where you have a market share test of 30%. Does it mean that with the introduction of the safe harbors, for all those vertical agreements above the market share of 15%, they will attract more scrutiny or closer scrutiny from SMR. I think this uh, is the question mark, and we'll have to wait until the final regulation is promulgated until we can see more enforcement of SMR in those regards before we can come to a landing on that. That's very interesting. In terms of enforcement priorities, the, the new anti-monopoly law suggests renewed focus on, on hub-and-spoke type of conspiracies and market dominance in the digital sector, the latter being a recurring theme across a number of our podcasts. Is this a fair reading, Nanette, or is there, is there more going on in terms of where SMR wants to head? I wouldn't describe hub-and-spoke necessarily as renewed focus. The AML introduced a new provision, facilitation infringement, signaling that hub and spoke can indeed be caught under the AML. There had been some ambiguity of this, given the structure of the AML. The digital sector is clearly a focus, as recent significant investigations in the sector have shown, where, for example, fines of up to 2.8 billion US dollars have been imposed in the past. The focus has been both under anti-competitive agreements or abuse of market dominance provisions. Other areas of focus include the use of data, algorithms, technology, and platform rules with exclusionary intent or self-preferencing are likely areas of focus for SMR going forward. But I would say that this is very much, as you alluded to, in line with what we're seeing across the world. If anything, investigations in China are completed on a much faster time frame compared with other jurisdictions. Perhaps one other point to note as well is the fact that the antitrust regime sits alongside the anti-unfair competition rules, which are currently under consultation for future changes. And here too, the digital markets are also in focus. And so it'll be interesting to see how the anti-unfair competition rules would sit and be applied alongside the antitrust regime as we see it today. And I think we need to add to that, Hazel, as you, as you alluded to it at the very start, that there's now also an introduction of personal and, and criminal liability for certain anti-competitive agreements, at least. So has SAMR been on the record on, on wanting to actually prosecute individuals for, for conduct? And how, how does this play or the, how does this interplay with, with what Nanette's been saying in terms of the focus on, on the digital sector? 
Under the new anti-monopoly law, for those infringing parties' legal representatives, persons in charge, or individuals directly responsible for anti-competitive agreement, they could face a fine of up to RMB one million. It is unclear whether these kind of individual fines will only apply to those persons in charge of a hardcore anti-competitive agreement, such as price fixing or market allocation, or even you know resale price maintenance. There is no clear guidance in the law as it stands right now. Although it is generally expected that SMR may be willing to impose personal fines only for those very serious anti-competitive conduct, such as those hardcore, you know, price-fixing agreements. So coming back to the trend that mentioned with respect to the digital sector, if we're talking about you know、uh, abusive conduct,、uh, this has not yet been an area where. The SMR or the new AML has provided the space for personal liabilities to be attached to, and also I think it's fair to say that although the new AML has been introduced for almost eight months,、uh, we haven't yet seen SMR rolling out a decision where the individuals have been fined for entering into these anti-competitive、uh, agreements. Although even before the new AML was introduced. SMR has already rolled out a few cases where the individuals obstructing their investigation、uh, were imposed personal fines. So I think this again is an evolving space that we'll have to continue to watch its development in China. Noted. Wait and see then. Just changing topics slightly, moving away from from merger control and、uh, antitrust. We're all aware of the geopolitical climate between the U.S. and China, in particular, and we know that the U.S. has been cracking down on Chinese foreign investment through CFIUS. Have we seen a mirror image of this in China, Hazel? What what should business know about Chinese national security reviews? Actually, in China, we are seeing two contradictory trends. On the one hand, China continues to open its markets to foreign investment by removing limitations on foreign ownership. For example, for the securities and the fund management sector, and for the passenger vehicle manufacturing sector, China no longer have、uh, foreign ownership restrictions, unlike what it did、uh, a few years ago. But on the other hand, as a counterbalance. The CFIUS equivalent, which is the、uh, National Security Review regime in China, is playing a more prominent role, and、uh, we indeed are seeing an uptick in deals being called in or companies making these national security filings more proactively. I think the business should be aware that the National Security Review regime in China captures both direct and also indirect investment. It can also capture a greenfield joint venture, and it can apply to various different sectors, such as critical technology, critical equipment manufacturing, critical infrastructure, etc., etc. As there is no clear guidance on what sectors would be considered critical, and given the authority had the power to call in a transaction even after the transaction is closed. In practice, we do have to do a very detailed analysis to assess two points. First, 
whether a transaction may have already fallen under the national security review regime, and second, if so, what are the substantive risks for proactively making a filing or you know not making a filing? So only by doing all that, we are able to tell the right strategy to deal with the regulatory regime. In practice, one trend we are seeing more frequently nowadays. Is to engage proactively with the authority before officially submit a filing, namely do a consultation with the authority. And in some of the cases, such consultation turns out to be quite fruitful, as the authority would be willing to give the advice that、uh, the transaction might not even need to be filed. Interesting and good to know that indeed that consultation is is an option and a, and a realistic option that's on the table for parties. Question for both of you: If there was one piece of advice that you would give to clients contemplating a large transaction or or entering into a major commercial agreement in China, what would it be? What should they always be mindful of? Ninette, I was wondering if you could go first. I think in the merger control context, it's important to allow sufficient time for long stop dates. It's also important to consider risk allocation mechanisms carefully. And relatedly, it will be important to keep in mind, frankly, whether in the merger control or the agreements context, the impact on China. And this picks up as well on what Hazel was talking about in the context of national security review. Perhaps finally, on a related point, is to allow for China-specific considerations to think critically about what a transaction, what a commercial agreement, its impact. Its effect has on China. Hazel, one final point from you. I think for the past few years during the pandemic period, SMR has been relatively quiet in terms of、uh, investigations, especially investigating after multinational companies. I think their appetite to investigate has, in general, been dampened due to the travel restrictions in China. But、uh, nowadays, with the、uh, you know. Business back to normal, SMR back to normal operations.、Uh, I think it's、uh, critical to bear in mind that it's now time for SMR to pick up investigations again, especially those having wide-ranging impact on the Chinese industry. So companies should、uh, indeed get prepared for investigations and downraising China, identify business lines where they have、uh, substantial market share. And、uh, be careful when they try to enter into exclusivity agreement or MFN clauses, and also be mindful of、uh, antitrust issues in joint R&D and also technology licensing agreements, which can be the next、uh, priority for the Chinese antitrust regulators. I guess that's a good point to end on. You know, if we can travel again, so can the regulator. Well, it's been an insightful overview of the developments in antitrust and national security screening regimes in in China. And it's been great sharing these insights with you, Nanette and Hazel. Thank you very much for being my guests today. Thank you, Laurent. Thank you, Laurent. A real pleasure. Thank you to our listeners for checking out this episode in our Essential Antitrust Asia series. If you'd like more information about the topics in this podcast, please email us using the links in the show description. We hope you'll join again next time.